And today's podcast is going to be about counseling. And uh, ended up having to counsel the soldier not to bring wildlife back into his room. You get worn out with dealing with soldiers. You just do. If I were you, I wouldn't worry about the writing so much. It's, it's about the dialogue. By the time you talk to them in that counseling, those little cues, those little things that they had said to you and given to you, those can help build transitions into different parts of the counseling as well. If a soldier is not performing or they have misconduct, your ability to properly do that counseling will be the difference between them continuing to serve or not continuing to serve. Hello, Jagoons. This is Command Sergeant Major Burke. And today's podcast is going to be about counseling. We're also going to be talking about the human dynamic of interaction, which is a part of leadership that we need to understand better than anything. Without an understanding, it will lack the ability to develop ourselves and those that we influence. So in the studio, I'll allow them to kind of go around and introduce themselves. And I will start with my right. I'm Staff Sergeant Thomas. I'm a 35 Fox over in the res in the micro. I'm First Sergeant Hamako. I'm the First Sergeant of RHHT, and I'm an 11 Zulu. Command Sergeant Major Marcus Brister. I am the Command Sergeant Major for Third Squadron, the Wolfpack, uh, dialing in from Elblog, Poland. All right. Hey, that's a nice place. Actually, that's a cool little town. We ask our junior level leaders to solve the most complex problems. And if you think about our business as the Army, we are in the business of human beings. And we are always developing leaders. Doesn't matter if it's a private, they are going to be a future leader of some kind. So the first question I would ask is, a new sergeant, where would you tell them to start? First part is really just getting to know folks and getting to know who they are, where they come from, what motivates them, and just kind of listen. I think that's where I, I kind of tell them to start up. You have to display active listening. You're not just talking at somebody. We are going to interact with each other. We are going to have a conversation. So currently, I, I told you guys that I was uh, over in the MICO. When we have uh, young NCOs, one of the biggest things that I tell them about their counselings is, the 4856 is a, is a really nice document. So it has good structure and everything like that, but particularly with those initial counselings. I encourage them to actually not finalize the documents, have that computer open. And actually, when you're sitting there and you're talking with the individual and you're engaging back and forth, right. you actually develop a rhetoric you can add to the counselling. It does not need to be ironclad before you sit down and talk to that person. And that kind of gives that freedom. Sometimes with young NCOs, they don't realize they have that freedom. You encourage them to have that living, breathing document. And quite honestly, I encourage them to have the, a memorandum for record that has an extensive initial counseling where they right. can sit down and have kind of an open dialogue on, okay, what are your goals? If you sit down there and you write it on that small portion of that 4856, it's just simply not enough. Right. And that may not drive the right kind of conversations you want to have with that individual. I think the 4856 makes it almost kind of a rigid approach to begin with. Exactly. You know, it's our Major Brister and I, we've, we've talked about this before. The tendency is when you're on a computer, you cut and you paste mm -hmm. and you copy and you just repeat the same crap over again. Because counseling is not about just doing counseling, the monthly counseling. It's about doing effective counseling. Counseling is nothing more than a leader development tool. That is the biggest driving factor for me whenever I am speaking to any segment of our population. Everything we do is an opportunity for you to learn something or right. for me to learn something. I have conversations nowadays, especially when I talk with junior soldiers, that I'll walk away and I'll take a couple notes and I'll be like, okay, I never thought about that before. If you're doing it correctly, you should not be walking into the counseling trying to be all, you know, all one-way conversation. You know, it's a dance. You're trying to pull information. You're trying to pass off information. And 
You have to be able to effectively communicate, having the understanding the message you're trying to send, actively listening for that message's receipt and any feedback that you might get from that. Remember being a, a private. And you're sitting down with your team leader for the first time. And I remember my first team leader, um, I was scared shitless of him. Very, very angry individual. In fact, now that I think about it, I think maybe he had some anger management issues, but that's beside the point. I knew I knew I needed to listen to him because he was in a position of leadership over the top of me. However, there was never respect built outside of that rank. He's a sergeant. I'm a private. I should listen to what he's telling me. That doesn't work anymore. It does not work in our army anymore. It doesn't work. And it, and it quite frankly, it should have never been that way anyway. There has to be respect. But more importantly, there has to be trust and rapport built right off the bat. So one thing that you know I would also encourage leaders to do is, and it might seem weird because you're asking this new soldier this, but it's all about how you formulate the question. When you sit down with him counseling, you explain to him, hey, okay, counseling, here's the reason behind it. Here's what we're trying to accomplish and everything else. But the first question I would have for you is, what do you need from me? You know, what concerns do you have, especially like here in Germany? Hey, what kind of trouble did you have getting over here? What's some of your concerns, maybe about family? Do you have a girlfriend? All these different kind of things. And you know, you might have to kind of use your imagination to kind of help the dialogue. But the first thing is, is instead of, hey, here's what you need to do, instead reversing that and saying, hey, what do I need to do for you? How can I be a better leader from your perspective? And then through that, you can have that dialogue and then you can transition that over time to, hey, okay, here's what the expectations are. So expectation counselings or initial counselling, that's not just when people show up. You as a leader, you should be doing an initial expectation counselling. They're your soldiers. You just stepped up in that leadership position. If you do not tell them what you expect of them, how are you ever going to hold them accountable? That's a great point, Sarmage. A lot of times that people will say, well, it was common sense. Yeah, but common sense ain't so common. <laughs> somebody had exactly. to say it. Somebody did, have, somebody did have to say it. And of course, you know, it's our major history. Maybe that initial counseling is not even with a piece of paper. It's just a park bench, two Subway sandwiches, sitting outside and having a conversation and getting to know who they are as a human being. I agree, Sergeant Major. Um, it's about shaping the that conversation and earning the trust and then going back and laying out those expectations, I think. And it's how you formulate that conversation. From my experiences, laying out those roles and responsibilities and expectations early, it really allows you later on to hold people accountable for the things they're doing or for the things they're not doing. If you don't have that trust or you don't have that buy-in from a person you're counseling, it doesn't matter. And it goes back to the beginning of having a meaningful conversation and not wasting anybody's time and portraying what you need and what they need in that dialogue. Part of that is too, is, you know, leader, whatever leader is, is, you know, covering that rank up and just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. What happens a lot of times, and quite frankly, leaders do it too. They just forget they need to earn your trust as a new soldier, or but it works both ways. You need to earn their trust. You need to earn their respect as well. Just because the army decided you're being a sergeant first class doesn't mean you still don't have to do it. You're never going to get to know your soldiers if you don't build that trust and that respect kind of both ways. I think you touched on something really interesting, Sergeant Major. You know, right now I'm I'm a staff sergeant of 10 years. Okay. Five years ago, my peers were all the same age group. Right. But now I'm getting soldiers that are born in 2000, 2001. So even on the civilian side of the house, there's a new generation. There's a new way to, to process information. They've immediately had information right at their fingertips the entire time. And so the way that you communicate is identifying where you've evolved and where the current generation is. So if projecting 
12 years in my future, if it's Command Sergeant Major Thomas, communicating with a private like I am now is not going to be the same in 12 years. Constantly monitoring and seeing like the change in the people and the, and the culture on the outside of the Army will also help us kind of understand how we interact with soldiers as we progress through our career. Well, I give you props for realizing that already because it was honestly about last week where I realized I was the old man. <laughs> I was I'm dead serious. Like I just realized it like, oh, shit, I'm the old guy now. It kind of kind of blew me away, made me stop my tracks. So I applaud you for already realizing that. The generational conversation is an interesting one. But I will say this. I think leaders that use, say, these kids nowadays or you know these soldiers nowadays, in my opinion, it's an excuse to just not connecting. I concur. And I'll say it's not. Yeah, they're different. Guess what? Every generation is different. Every generation is different. They just are. They grow up in a different world. What is the real truth is a generation nowadays is smarter than we ever were simply because of the access to information. The reason I say all that is, is that you have to understand that. And that simple, when I was in the army, Private Burke, do this, do it now. Nowadays, when a soldier turns to you and says, well, hey, Sergeant, why do I have to do this? You have to realize not maybe that they're being disrespectful. They're just used to having the answers to everything. And you just have to recognize that. I think you're you're nailing a great point there, Sergeant Major. I would be willing to bet that if we could jump in a time machine and go back to the Roman Legion, some sergeant out there griping about the next generation. (laughs) (laughs) Right. In reality, what I think it is, is we as leaders are constantly supposed to be adapting our styles and our approaches to match the people that we're in charge. Oh, man, you're nailing it. To find out what is most effective for that individual. If a leader falls back on that, I'm like, oh, it's this generational thing. Nah, man, you're just being lazy, you know, and you don't want to figure out how to get after it. Because what I found in 20 years of service, people want to know how much you care before they care how much you know. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if you get out there and and you actually take care of people like magic, it'll work itself out. Leaders have to adapt. That soldier is joining the army. They are drinking from a fire hose. Everything is new to them. They've never been through that. Even at the sergeant level, you have iterations. You know, you've been through live fires before or certification exercises. You've been through some training. You've done all this stuff. You've been through it. As a leader, it is your job. It's not theirs to adapt to you you should be adapting to them. And it gets more complex. And that is the burden of leadership, so to speak. Directly, how many NCOs do you have that work for you? I have about five. About five. Okay. First aren't? Uh, 45 or so. so. Yeah. 45 NCOs that pretty much report to you. Okay. You know, Sergeant Major Brister. Uh, it's about 350 altogether. Yeah. Right. And I have about 10 billion. No, I'm just kidding. You know, <laughs> but I, uh, it feels yeah, like you it. Seven times <laughs> I will tell you that some days it feels like it, I swear. Every single individual is different. They have a completely different upbringing. They have a completely different background. They learn differently. They hear differently. They visualize things differently. So you have to adapt. It's impossible to do that if you don't know them. You know, in high-stress situations, right? So we're in combat, maneuvering, and you're going to go real direct. Everything that you did leading up to that point oh, is God dang it. gives awesome. them the trust. You know, it's not just that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's going to be combat situations where you're going to have to say, go execute this, time now. And, and on both parts, there's no time for dialogue. There's no time for questions. They have to execute that at that moment. Otherwise, people you know, could lose their lives or be seriously injured. But if you didn't do the work prior to that to build that up, 
that expectation might not be there and the execution of that might not be there. That's a phenomenal point. And, yeah. and it's going back to in knowing one another and you get to know one another through those open dialogues that you have and you can understand and you can gauge a person about, hey, is it the time now to kind of ask a question or is it time to for me to just execute right. something? But they need to know you to be able to do that as well. Absolutely. And yeah. that's, that's okay. the point where I, I'm trying to go, I think, Sergeant Major, is that knowing one another and knowing how to interact with one another and will get you through some different situations. That's I good. think a, a lot of that is also shaped by your interactions prior to the counseling too. Yeah, it's absolutely. Simply walking by and just a moment in the morning and saying, like, hey, how was your weekend? And those 45 seconds that you accumulate over talking to that person maybe seven times, by the time you talk to them in that counseling, those little cues, those little things that they had said to you and given to you, those can help build transitions into different parts of the counseling as well. What a great point, man. You Like everything you just described, in my opinion, is being a decent human being, genuinely caring about people. It's not just about work. Because our, you know, like Sergeant Major Burton nailed it up front. Our job is a people game. Yeah. Right. That's what it's really about. And without the people, we can't make it happen. We wouldn't have jobs if we didn't have the people. That's a true statement. So I, I had a commander one time that he, you know, he used to say, never walk right by a soldier. Always stop and have a conversation with him. Ever since he said that, you know, I, I've always tried to do it. I'm sure there, I know I fail when there's so many people. I can't count how many of those interactions, those small conversations where I just was walking by a soldier and I stopped and I had a conversation with him where I uncovered something or I prevented something that could have been catastrophic. I'll give you an example, actually. Well, just because, you know, people like stories. Walking by the PX, I see a senior NCO. I know he's going through a lot. As I'm walking by, I'm about to just go straight into the PX and I don't. I stop. Uh, he was in such a bad place uh, because of his marriage and a lot of different things. He had bought a bunch of alcohol. It was in his car. And uh, I think it, I think it would have downward spiraled that night and we would have had it. We would have had a major issue, if not maybe a loss of a soldier. And, you know, so we were able to talk. We were able to get him in touch with the chaplain. And, he, you know, he was able to sit down and kind of work through some of the stuff and get out of the space in his mind that he was in. If I had not stopped, you know, maybe it would have been fine. But thankfully, we'll never know. Those small interactions, being a human, like Sergeant Major Brister said, can, can really kind of prevent things. And in that moment, could be exactly what that person needs. You know, just to like kind of bring that back around, Sergeant Majors. So there's four attributes that all leaders have to demonstrate yep. to counsel effectively, right? So the first one is respect for subordinate self and cultural awareness, credibility, and empathy. If you can't do those four things on a daily basis, how are you ever going to do it? You're trying to counsel somebody. You know, we should practice what we preach every day. I agree. And I think you need to work on it and practice it. Um, make mistakes too. make mistakes because it, it gets tougher. When you become a senior leader, it does not get easier. Everybody thinks it's going to get easier. It doesn't. By the time things get to Sergeant Major Brister's level, they're pretty difficult problems. He's asked to solve very, very complex problems. By the time they get to the regimental level, the RCO and I's level, they are life-changing decisions, meaning they're going to end somebody's career or they're going to significantly impact the rest of it. Even at the senior NCO level, I've always struggled. Should I counsel? Uh, should I lay out expectations for senior NCOs? And I've discussed it with peers and I've discussed it with mentors. I always fall back to yes. Sergeant Major Brister, I don't rate him at all. But 
okay? I am part of the higher headquarters that he falls under. We constantly talk, you know, him being one of the squadron CSMs. If I don't tell him what the expectations are, then how can I ever hold him accountable? It, it goes for the first sergeants, you know, who, when you talk about mentorship and professional development, I need to lay out the expectations for all the first sergeants because at the end of the day, the regimental sergeant major is the guy that hires and fires all the first sergeants while in conjunction with the regimental commander. Well, I can't do that if I don't tell them what I expect as first sergeants. You always, any subordinate that you have, you have to counsel them and you have to lay out the expectations. How do you start counseling as a young leader? If you don't have any practice, especially if you are insecure about your writing ability. And the Wolfpack, something that we've done to counteract that is we've created a format for your monthly performance counsel. Really what it's kind of done is it's a checklist for you to stir your brain and stir your thoughts. The first thing you count, you know, the first thing on the checklist is performance. And so we put on there two sustains and one improve as a guideline. That way it makes you, you know, pick out good things that they've done and something to work on. Promotion. So you have to go do the research to figure out when do they go into the primary zone? Are they in the secondary zone? Are you recommending them for promotion or not? Physical fitness and training. You know, we want to talk about where they currently work on getting better. Uh, Re-enlistment. You know, go talk to retention and, and figure out if they're even in their window. Bonuses or options or tools. What's available? Military, civilian education. Uh, what's a good time to go? And then lastly, say any points relating to military, civilian, or recent safety bulletins that have come out that you need to cover that are specific to the area. I had a Sergeant Major do it for me a long time ago, and I thought it was a good tool as our young leaders start the counseling process as a young sergeant who's never told anybody anything before. How do we start framing that conversation for them so they can move forward and making them better? So the Wolfpack really has done a phenomenal job. Um, we can't make the assumption that these new leaders know how to do this stuff. So if we prescribe them, give them the tools, and then educate them on how to use these tools, that's going to help them do effective kind of counseling. That's a really good way to frame it. For a junior leader learning how to counsel, you're, we're providing the framework for you to kind of use. And then as you practice that and use that framework, you start to learn how to counsel on your own through trial and error. And you figure out what works and what doesn't. And how do I continue to open up this dialogue I'm having with somebody? Still, you've got that kind of safety net of the framework. So you can kind of still focus in on the things that you need to. But until you've practiced and become an effective counselor, that framework will help you get to that point, I think. The intent here is not to be draconian and this is the only way to do it. Hey, here is the tool to start the conversation. And as you grow and you learn and you learn your soldiers and you figure out that, hey, this guy doesn't react if I go this way. You've got to tailor your counseling to that individual. It's just like a lot of things in the Army. You can't take away, but you can add to. One of the things that I highly encourage my team leaders and squad leaders to put in their counselings is a quarterly outlook on what's going to happen with the unit. For people that have families, people that want to go pursue education, stuff like that, you know, expectation management. This is tentative. This is what's going to happen in three weeks. I agree. The thing I would just add on, you know, for this is you're not going to ever get better if you don't practice. None of us knew, you know, coming in the army how to do counseling. Going back to the second part of that question, Sergeant Major, the, the insecurities in your writing skills. Over time, that comes and, and you have to develop yourself professionally as well do a little research on how do I write, maybe taking some college classes on writing or, or just doing some research on your own to figure that out. And the more you practice the writing and the more you practice 
the speaking, you'll get better in time. Uh, nobody, or at least I didn't know how to really write coming out of high school and over yeah. time and over development from my leaders, I grew and, and I researched on my own and, and I learned. I'm not the best writer now, but I'm a lot better than I was when I first came in the army. And then I think if I were you, I wouldn't worry about the writing so much. It's, it's about the dialogue that you're having. Absolutely. I still have people review the things that I write. There's people that I have that are trusted agents, you know, that I, I send stuff to and I ask them, hey, we review this for me. But when you're, a, you know, a young sergeant, you have somebody, you know, at your disposal, so to speak, that you can use to help you with your edits and help you with your writing. It's that platoon leader. The Army paid for their college degree. Use it and have them help you. And that's going to be great professional development because you have to get better at writing. I think you bring up a, a great point, Sergeant Major. And so I would pose a question to the, to the panel here. You know, down at the team leader level or at the squad leader or team sergeant or section sergeant level, right? How do we think counseling supports the unit? Like, what are what are some of the positive things we think we can take from that? It goes back to the counseling that I received from Sergeant Major Burke. You first came up to the regiment. And it's about knowing yourself and knowing what the, the mission is and what your higher headquarters is and, and what they're trying to achieve. And I think down at the lower level, that translates the specialists and the PFCs. They understand what the troop is trying to achieve. And we're having that conversation with the team leaders and the squad leaders and the soldiers then we can kind of have a, a unity of effort and we know what direction we want to take the platoon or the squad or the or even the troop. Without that unity of effort, we're just trying to do our own little things at the squad and team level. And we're never going to ever achieve greatness, I think. So my PO, Lieutenant, embedded in that support form that he got from the commander, he is then supposed to counsel me and start to develop mine. It trickles down and utilize that information that comes from the commander who is attending all the briefings from the squadron commander who's attending all the briefings from the RCO and getting coached and teach and mentored from them, it will trickle down. For example, as a platoon sergeant, when I get counseled, my PL should have already been counseled by the commander and then it trickles down and I, and I counsel my NCOs. We all know that doesn't actually happen all the time. But ideally, if the system is used, the doctrine is already in place. So the soldiers, all the way down to that team leader level, they should understand holistically what the organization is trying to accomplish. You talk about the trickle down effect. The regimental commander has commander's guidance. His is directly in line with the CG. All the troop commanders get an in brief from the regimental commander where he lays out his intent for the regiment, the guidance of philosophy and all that stuff. Well, the way it should work with all these counselings that are going on at the kind of the higher, the, you know, the regimental, the squadron level and everything else, the troop commanders with the PLs, and as it goes down to the squad leaders, the team leaders with the platoon sergeant, it should be their interpretation of how they're going to execute the commander's intent and his vision for the organization as a whole. Because as big as 2CR is, if you put them on the field of battle, it's amazing how small of a regiment we almost become and how in sync everything needs to be. So the way is it, it should work is by the time that that private is getting his initial counseling, it should be in line with the commander's intent and the commander's guidance. If I were to summarize all of those statements into like one sentence, right? It helps subordinates understand their role in accomplishing the unit's mission. Hey, counseling is a great tool to, for us to do that. In 2CR, everything we do is for our one mission. But at the end of the day, it's summarized in one very, very clear statement that every soldier in 2CR should know. We kill tanks. In 2CR, it's actually a lot easier to do that than it is, I feel, in other units because we have a very, very clear mission 
and we train all the time exactly where we would have to execute it. Okay, let's have a little fun here. What is the weirdest thing you've ever had to counsel somebody on? I had to counsel a soldier on proper hygiene procedures, how to properly shower, wash his clothes, clean his room, and everything. Because it was not only offensive, it was literally making other people sick to be around him. It was absolutely terrible. You always knew when he was walking up to you because you could smell him from up to 50 feet away. And we told him, you know, like, yeah, you know, hey, man, go take a shower. Hey, go wash your uniform. But it eventually got so bad that the PL and the platoon sergeant said, you will counsel him and you will teach him how to have proper hygiene procedures. And I did. I had to teach him how to wash his clothes. Obviously, I had to teach him how to shower. I had to get a little creative there. Did not actually physically wash him. I just want to make sure that that is clear. Um, <laughs> but, you know, washing your bedding, washing your towels, cleaning your room and eating habits. I mean, everything because it was absolutely terrible. Now, granted, I had to do this when he still stunk. What a good time. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, uh, you know, and, you know, we often talk about it in the army that you literally you know, especially at that lower level, you become people's, you know, father, mother, brother, sister, uncle. So that's definitely one of the weirdest things I've ever had to counsel on. First, I just got something. How did he end up? Uh, How did he end up? Oh, boy. I want to say he was separated from the army for something different. I don't remember what it was, though. (laughs) But uh, I was 20 at the time. So I was a a brand new E5. So. All right. So what else did anybody else got? So I I had a soldier. Uh, So we had just gotten back from supporting MFO mission in Egypt and we went back to Fort Hood. He decided that he would go to the class six. He took the back of his cat card, 19 years old, scratched it out so it would look like he was 21 years old. He also took his dependent with him in and bought it, got caught. I get a call from my first sergeant, absolutely livid. I got I got an earful for that and I had to pull him in at 2100 with his wife waiting in the car and had to counsel him on why he shouldn't deface the back of his ID card to try to buy alcohol. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's like a federal offense. It is. Yeah. Uh, and it, what baffles me is he still remained in the Army for some time. So. Oh, boy. We're going to come back to that specific part of that conversation in a second here. But, okay, anybody else? So, young Sergeant Brister, 22 years old at the time, Fort Stewart, Georgia, Tuesday after a four-day weekend. And I'm going through the barracks at, you know, 5.30 in the morning. And just right off the bat, I get hit with this smell, right? And I'm like, oh, my God, what is going on in here, right? You know, long story short, and I ended up having to counsel the soldier not to bring wildlife back into his room. Because uh, he had went fishing on Thursday night and caught a fish and decided that a good place to put it was a sock drawer. Where else would you put a bass? Where else would you put a bass? <laughs> and uh, so that thing sat and festered all weekend. Tuesday morning, it was uh, it was very ripe. You know, so, and then first, our Hamako, I know you're dying to know here. Uh, he definitely got chaffered out of the military. <laughs> all right, Hamako, you got a story? I had the, per- the hygiene things happen and had to counsel, not to the extent you did, Sergeant Major. Um, living in a tent in Afghanistan or Iraq and, you know, the Port of John's kind of far away. I've encountered a couple of people that just are too lazy to go out the hundred meters to the Porter John and like to have a collection of pee bottles, not that they would stash away under uh, the beds yeah, and yeah. 
So I had to have that conversation and make sure that didn't happen. Uh, I got one more. I got one more. This one will be super quick. Anybody been to uh, JPLM? Anybody's been stationed at Fort Lewis? Okay. You've never been stationed? Do you know where Nisqually Bridge is? I had to counsel mid-level NCO that uh, Nisqually Bridge was not an acceptable address for his proof of a lease uh, to collect BH. He was literally living in a van down by the river and pocketing BH. That is actually a true story, and it's funny. He took that cadence a little too literally. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but I do. I want to come back to something you said here. It's about the difficult conversations. Counseling is also an obligation by the army to make sure that the right people continue to serve in our army and get promoted in our army. If a soldier is not performing or they have misconduct, your ability to properly do that counseling will be the difference between them continuing to serve or not continuing to serve. You have to counsel them and tell them, hey, you're doing this, you can't do this, and here's what you need to do in the plan of action to correct it. And then, oh, by the way, here's my obligation as a leader, and here's how I'm going to help you do that to try to correct that. To me, it's about the intestinal fortitude to look at somebody in their eyes and tell them you're just not achieving the standard. You don't have to be an asshole about it. You just got to be honest. You guys say this, I'm kind of absorbing all this as a young NCO. So in my platoon, I kind of say like, this is what I want for these event-oriented counselings. I want a factually based paragraph. This is what happened on purely based off of my accounts. The next paragraph is, this is why this action or whatever you did was unlawful or incorrect. Why we're sitting here doing this. Of course, we say the magic bullet. Uh, on there. And I always direct them to do those three things. Is there anything in there that you guys would add to or any kind of expansion on that for you know young NCOs that would kind of help drive that to be a little bit more effective <laughs> on a legal standpoint? Every squadron has paralegals, you know, and you can talk to them about the counseling. Don't leave things up for interpretation to people that are going to be reviewing the packets later on. Say what you need to say. So one of the unique challenges um, as a, a junior NCO is identifying at what point do you hit that wall? Because those, yeah. those counselings, ultimately, you want those counselings to be retained. The Army has invested money, time, Absolutely. training, Absolutely. as well as yourself. And one of the hardest things as a junior NCO, I would continuously try to do this this and this to try to challenge that individual to get something more out of them. But when, when do you say like, hey, this is the time? As lower level leadership, you never stop trying. You're always trying to help that soldier. If you're a sergeant, you never give up. Until the day they walk out of the military, they get on that flight, you are trying to help them. And you are trying, you have their best interest in mind. It does not matter what has happened. They're your soldier. You are directly responsible for them at all times. You will be so sick. You will. You get worn out with dealing with soldiers. You just do, you know, and their issues and the drama and everything else. And then all you start to see is things that confirm your bias. And that's where you got to make sure that you're reaching up and reaching out and asking for additional kind of eyes on things and different perspective on things because we're human at the end of the day. Thank you guys for coming on. You know, this is a SAR major, another SAR major on the line dialing in from Poland and a first SAR and a staff sergeant. But we're just having a conversation here. And that's really honestly what your counseling should be about. It's not about making sure you do counseling every month. It's about counseling effectively, being involved in your soldier's life, because the real important part of it is, is you need to not only know how they're going to react in combat, but also when we're back here, you know, and we're in a garrison kind of environment and understanding them well enough to know when they have off days 
And when you need to maybe step in and you need to have a different conversation with them, or they need some motivation, or they need some direction, whatever it might be, that's really what counseling is truly about. This is Dragoon 7, signing off the net. We want to keep these going, but we want to make sure that they're engaging. If you have any ideas of anything that you would like to have us cover, please let us know, contact the PAO, and make your suggestion. Also, if you would like to be on a podcast, again, contact the PAO, because we want to bring soldiers in across the entire regiment and have them contribute to this.